Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, a respiratory therapist enters into the e-cigarettes debate. Byproducts of heating nicotine are arsenic, known to cause heart disease, lithium, formaldehyde, known to cause throat cancer as a carcinogen. Plus, mothers-to-be with opioid addiction, how it affects the baby. Seizures can occur and it generally means that no one was even looking for the syndrome. And so they're looking for something else and didn't suspect it. And some help for some common, though troubling, digestive disorders. Abnormality with this coordination mechanism leads to GI motility disorder, which to a very large extent underdiagnosed in the U.S. population. We'll have all that in a piece from our Healing Muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, how to prevent the problem of maternal addiction and newborn withdrawal from opioids. Plus, help for some digestive tract problems, although common, can have serious consequences. But first, the e-cigarette debate. Does it help smokers quit, or is it a gateway for new smokers? Many people have turned to electronic cigarettes in hopes of avoiding the heart and cancer risks associated with smoking conventional tobacco products. But vaping, as it's come to be known, appears to be far from benign. We'll hear what the latest information on e-cigarettes and what you need to know is Teresa Hankin. She's a respiratory therapist and a smoking cessation counselor at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Teresa. Thanks so much for coming in. Good morning, Linda. So let's talk about e-cigarettes just for the, you know, for the definition. What exactly are they and what do they offer? So an electronic cigarette is an electronic nicotine delivery system. A lot of people uh, don't realize that it's actually a nicotine delivery system. It's typically comprised of a cartridge containing a fluid, which is known as nicotine juice, a heating element, and a battery. When the fluid in the cartridge is heated, it produces an inhalable aerosol. We call it a water vapor, but it is actually a very small particulate matter, which is an aerosol, that is flavored such as, there are many, many flavors, such as bubblegum and tropical fruit, so it really appeals to youth and children. So when you talk about vaping as opposed to smoking, basically this vapor comes out of the the heated aerosol, or uh, this aerosol or vapor comes out of this heated juice, and they basically inhale it just as you would drawing on a cigarette in terms in terms of inhaling it into your lungs and then blowing it out again. That is correct. So you mentioned a few things that are in e-cigarettes. I think a lot of people may not even realize that there is predominantly nicotine that's basically derived from tobacco, and that's the main component. But there are many, many other components as well. What is the concern from a health standpoint at this point? I know up until very recently, none of this was regulated. It was kind of a new industry, and we'll talk a little bit about the regulations that have come to the fore of late, but what exactly do we know about what's in e-cigarettes? So the potential harms with e-cigarettes and vaping is growing. The list is growing. We know that when you heat uh, chemicals, such as the flavorings that are in the nicotine juice, that there is another chemical reaction that can emit other chemicals. There are definitely heavy metals in nicotine juice, such as lead, nickel, silver, copper, and aluminum. Um, Byproducts of heating nicotine are such as arsenic, known to cause heart disease, lithium, formaldehyde, known to cause throat cancer as a carcinogen. And Linda, if I were to say to you, we could take some arsenic and put it in liquid form, would you inhale it? So basically what you're saying is, let's, let's take just the other chemicals you're talking about. There's a lot of things in there that could be very harmful, that we know are harmful, that have show, been shown to pro, have been proven to cause other types of cancer. But let's get to the nicotine itself. Is, it, is nicotine safe to begin with? 
we know that nicotine is the chemical that is addictive. Nicotine um, can be lethal in large doses. We know that, for instance, with the electronic cigarettes, the nicotine juice, which you often can get at these vape shops, come in, in bottles that are labeled that have pictures of fruit or flavorings or bubblegum on them, a very um, attractive to children. We did have one case in New York State where a child died from um, nicotine toxicity. Nicotine can be lethal in large doses. So the point is the nicotine itself can be very harmful. I, even in terms of pregnancy, I know that there have been studies that have shown that it has harmful to the developing fetus. It can cause lasting consequences in the brain and in the lung function of newborns, for example, if they're around it. And I want to talk about secondhand smoke in a minute. But basically, nicotine exposure, whether it's through smoking or through vaping, can really affect pregnant women and their developing babies just to begin with. And then we don't really know the full range of how this nicotine can affect you, even though it's not, um, it's not smoked and coming directly from tobacco in that way. We're really at the forefront of doing that kind of research, aren't we? Yes, definitely. It is the forefront. And uh, our health concern is that this is, will be an ongoing way for our youth to become addicted to nicotine. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with respiratory therapist Teresa Hankin. We're talking about e-cigarettes. And also, you were mentioning already, you've already made an allusion to the fact that there have been some cases of poisoning. I mean, it seems to me that where this product has been promoted as a potential way of quitting smoking and therefore may be attractive to some adults who are hooked on cigarettes... Instead, it seems to be being marketed to a whole other population. Tell us about that. Yes, e-cigarettes are being marketed towards our youth. We have a 900%, that's right, 900% uh, increased use with vaping and e-cigarettes in our high school youth. They're becoming addicted to nicotine through what, what is being marketed as a quit smoking aid. We're going to get a whole new generation of addicted smokers who often will be dual-use smoking and vaping, so smoking on combustible cigarettes as well as vaping with an electronic cigarette. So it's basically a gateway. I mean, this whole notion of it being a way of getting off cigarettes, in fact, what we're not hearing, and clearly when you see the tobacco industry come out in full force marketing these products, they obviously know that they really are kind of hooking, as you said, a new generation to be using their products. Tell me about the poisoning, though. There have been cases, you've alluded to the fact that all these new flavors obviously are very attractive to kids, young people, but also might be ingested um, kind of un you know, in an unaware way by children and there have been incidents of poisoning, am I correct? Yes, there, there have been. It's getting more national news now. I know that part of the FDA ruling is that they, they want to make sure that it's, this nicotine juice is not accessible to children and our youth. And also I, I read somewhere that you can get exposure even through the eye and the skin. I mean, it may not even be that the child actually ingests it, but basically children should not be exposed to this liquid in any way. Exactly. Um, even if you just spill it, let's say you spill it and there's drops um, around your animals, your dog can lick it up, children can get it on their skin. That's very true. It is, it is lethal. What do we know so far about the, whole, the dangers of secondhand smoke from the vapor? I mean, I know that there's been a lot of research to, talking about secondhand smoke with cigarettes and also what we call thirdhand exposure. Mm -hmm where the particulates land on things, children climb on the floor or on couches where you have all these carcinogen particulates around. But isn't it possible? I mean, it sounds like it's possible. Do we have any idea as to what the potential danger is from exposure to vaping? Yes, the research is just beginning, but we know that that particulate matter, contrary to popular belief, you're not inhaling a water vapor, but an aerosol, as you said. It's a very fine, what we call a nanoparticle. 
there have been um, reports of asthma attacks. Anytime you inhale anything that's not meant to be in your lungs, your body's natural defense is inflammation. Inflammation can lead to uh, wheezing, bronchospasm. I work with, with many patients that begin to vape and they try an electronic cigarette and they tell me all of a sudden I have asthma. I've never wheezed before. I become short of breath. I mean, again, that speaks to what are you putting in your lungs. The size of those particles are very irritating to your airways. So the bottom line is, or not the bottom line yet, but this whole idea is that even this um, new product basically carries a lot of potential hazards, and we are only beginning to uh, understand. I read somewhere that recent studies in terms of the secondhand smoke, that there were two studies that found that formaldehyde, benzene, tobacco-specific nitrosamines and carcinogens coming from that secondhand emission that people are being exposed to where you think you're safe, so to speak, because it's not smoke. Yes, it's just a water vapor, you know, and you, you will hear people say that, oh, it's, you know, it's just this water vapor, it's okay. But as you said, the research is new and they are finding that those cancer-causing chemicals are in that... Um, aerosol, if you will, that is admitted. The the vape shops actually have vaping contests. It's becoming quite a culture. As we know, we're seeing those vape shops um, pop up all around. It, it's quite it's quite a culture. And, um, you know, how much can we blow these vapor rings and what can we do, you know, to this is attractive and this is a cool thing to do. It's but, almost like smoking was in the 50s. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's got starting that a whole new culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So bottom line, you are a smoking cessation expert at this point. Can e-cigarettes help people quit? Have you seen that work? In my practice, I have not. Most of the people that I work with have at least tried an electronic cigarette. Uh, another problem associated with it if is when someone wants to quit smoking if they go originally and spend hundreds of dollars for these products there's three types of electronic cigarettes so there's the disposable there's a pen sized tank and then there's a large tank they cost a lot of money by the time they come to me they've spent hundreds of dollars at least a hundred or more and then we start talking about the seven FDA approved medications that they can use and things that are proven to help them quit and they say, well, I've invested all this money into this. And, and once I started vaping, I realized it doesn't draw like a cigarette. It doesn't give me the same experience. So I stuck it in a drawer. I hear that time and time again. But also, are people doing dual things? I mean, what I read somewhere is that it's they think they're going to kind of wean themselves off cigarettes, but they end up using both. I see dual use the most. So that's so, in fact, that kind of underscores what I've been reading. Yes. So mm-hmm. what are the regulations in the very bit, a little, little bit of time we have left? Just very, very quickly, tell me what you, you know the FDA is doing now. So in May 5th, 2016, the FDA finalized a ruling extending its authority to all tobacco products, which includes an electronic cigarette. This is huge. Now the FDA is considering an electronic cigarette as a tobacco product. It's going to be regulated. Their biggest concern within 90 days is our youth not allowing products to be sold to anyone under 18 in person or online, uh, requiring age verification by a photo ID, no covered tobacco products in vending machines unless it's an adult-only facility, and no distribution of free samples. So basically they're going to take control or attempt to take control yes. and treat treat these e-cigarettes much like regular cigarettes. Yes. And hopefully hopefully, we might be able to develop some alternative method uh, messages to our youth, <clears throat> excuse me, that this is not the panacea and this is not as cool as it seems. Yes, it's not necessarily a safe product for you to use. Um, the the other um, requirements are they're going to be regulated now. So the the juice, the ingredients, it's going to take several years, but they are going to be regulated and we'll know what's in them. That is great news. Thank you so much for coming in. This was very, very helpful and important. My guest has been Teresa Hankin. She's a respiratory therapist and a smoking cessation counselor at Upstate Medical University. And we've been talking about e-cigarettes. Coming up next, how to prevent the problem of maternal addiction and newborn withdrawal from opioids. You're listening to Upstate's 
HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Well, the use of opioids during pregnancy can result in a drug withdrawal syndrome in newborns, often called neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS. And according to a new study, nearly 22,000 babies were born with this syndrome in the United States in 2012. That represents a five-fold increase from the year 2000. Well, here to tell us more about this dramatic increase and its consequences is Dr. Michelle Bodie. She's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University and an attending neonatologist at Grouse Hospital and the NICU follow-up clinic. Welcome, Dr. Bodie. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by, you know, let's discuss this whole term, neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS. What is it? So neonatal abstinence syndrome is basically the result of any type of narcotic or opioid agent that the mother might have taken during pregnancy, exposed her unborn fetus to, and when the baby is born, the baby now shows signs and symptoms of withdrawal because they no longer are seeing that narcotic that they saw in the womb. Did the, does the narcotic or, or any of these drugs that we're talking about have to be taken all the way up until delivery for that effect? In other words, if the patient had taken it a month before, would the baby still experience the syndrome? It is very dependent on the drug. So drugs that are short-acting, generally mom has to have taken them fairly close to the time of delivery. But longer-acting agents can last in a baby's system for a very long time. So what exactly do we see when we talk about this thing called neonatal abstinence syndrome? I mean, what, what do you see in the babies? So for the babies, initially you might see nothing. It's something that over the first one to three to five to seven days of life, as the baby's system is removing what it saw in the womb, then notices the change. And so the baby becomes irritable, the baby becomes jittery, the baby doesn't feed well, the baby has diarrhea, the baby is overall upset, is not happy with life, doesn't sleep, has a shrill cry. So the families will say, I know what this is. I might have been through this before and even though the baby can't tell me they're uncomfortable, the parents often will recognize it first. As a withdrawal. As a withdrawal, because they might have been through that themselves. That's very interesting. Are there ever seizures that take place as well? Seizures can occur, and it generally means that no one was even looking for the syndrome. And so they're looking for something else and didn't suspect it. So I've alluded to the fact that there's been a a dramatic increase. And you have some more recent stats than ones I even quoted. Tell us about what's happening on a national level and then, of course, locally. So nationally, as well as locally, there is the surge of heroin, which is a much more potent agent than that of 20 years ago. We also know that many women are exposed to narcotics during their pregnancy, especially in the first trimester when they don't even know they're pregnant, for something as simple as a dental extraction or as severe as a car accident with multiple bone breakage. Then they become addicted and now they're using this agent. We also know there are narcotics normally required for normal medical problems that the woman has to take during the pregnancy, and therefore her baby is exposed. It doesn't make her a bad person. It's just something that we need to deal with potentially when the baby is born. So the fact that there's been an increase in this type of withdrawal is is kind of follows the fact that there's been an increase in the overall use of whether they be um, off-label drugs or perfectly prescribed drugs. drugs. Absolutely. It is truly a mixture of the two. So it's a syndrome that is there regardless of where that drug initially came from. Now, in terms of our local issues, are we experiencing a more than normal increase? 
And when I it comes- would say that we are very good in central New York at asking the question, is there a possible exposure? And we don't bury our heads in the sand and say it's not us. We are actually actively looking during pregnancy. Our obstetric community is very good at screening the women so that we can provide the best care for the baby when it's not born and then when it is born. So we look. You, and that you think in some ways, you're saying at what point do you look though? We look as soon as mom is pregnant and we know. Universal drug screening during pregnancy is becoming a much more acceptable and considered standard of care. And here in upstate New York, especially along the 81 corridor, we really have tried to push that you need to ask so you really know what's going on so we can take care of both of them. So we are very much more an aware area. There are areas of the U.S. that will say, oh, we don't have this problem. Well, guess what? They actually do have the problem, but if you don't ask about it, you don't know. And if the baby's symptoms aren't going to show up for 48 to 72 hours, there's a very good chance that baby is born and that baby goes home. And then that baby withdraws at home and potentially is one of our shaken baby victims. That's very interesting that you think that that could actually be a consequence of it in terms of the fact that they're so hyper irritable, they can't be comforted or what have you, and the, and the new parents perhaps kind of lose it, so to speak. Right, they're overwhelmed. Wow. So how in the hospital do you actually diagnose, or even after the hospitalization, the delivery, is this diagnosed in terms of it truly being an NAS you know, syndrome? So for diagnosis, one, you need a history. Two... Urine drug screens are the current state that we use here in central New York. Is this for the mother? This is for both mom and baby. We also, on the baby, can send their first stool, their meconium, to find the drugs. Um, But that's a send-away test. It takes a ways to come back. So we often will use the urine drug screen. Then there is tools that are used. We have standardized collection tools such as the Finnegan scoring system. There's a neonatal withdrawal score tool. And it's the use of these tools showing what the baby is like between care periods to say, how are you doing, baby? Are you typical? Did you have a bad couple hours? Or are you starting to show more and more signs that are consistent with withdrawal that cannot be treated by normal comfort issues for a child. So is this done largely during the, you know, after birth, the the first few days in the hospital? Because now the stays in the hospital are shorter and shorter. Or is it something that pediatricians then also pick up the ball with? So if we have a known exposure in the womb, there is no such thing as a short stay for that baby. Those babies are going to be in the hospital a minimum of three to five days, depending on the narcotic that they saw in the womb. If you do not know about this and mom says nothing and there's no suspicion, potentially the baby does go home. And then the pediatrician will have to deal with this in that first visit at two to four days of life. And they're going to have to be aware to look, to ask, because that's where the symptoms are going to be. How about in this, that, how does this, the issue of nursing play a role here? In other words, and I've always been curious about this, you, you have someone who's been exposed to narcotics, the mother. They give birth to a child who then goes into withdrawal. If they choose to nurse, which we obviously want to encourage most mothers to do, and the person and the mother is continuing to use some of these drugs that we've discussed, Does it continue to feed the baby the drug that way? In other words, does the drug pass through the milk? Compared to what the baby sees in the womb, the amount that crosses to the breast milk is significantly less. And for moms who are receiving prescription medications and are in programs and taking care of themselves, we want them to breastfeed. And that little bit that passes oftentimes will help diminish the severity of the withdrawal. Now, if it's an illegal drug, they're getting their drugs off the street, we actually discourage breastfeeding. And it's not always just because of the narcotic, it's what else is being mixed 
in that substance that potentially could harm the child. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neonatologist Dr. Michelle Bodie, and we're talking about neonatal abstinence syndrome when babies are born addicted. So um, basically, what do, first of all, what, is the, what are the consequences, both short-term and long-term, for a child who has NAS, who's been diagnosed with NAS? So short-term, that means they're in the hospital longer number one. Number two, you have to realize that there's bonding that should be occurring. Well, bonding can be dramatically affected and interfered with if that baby has to stay and mom's not able to stay for some reason, if that baby has to be admitted to an intensive care unit in the region for treatment. Most of the area's intensive care units do not have rooms baby and mom stay together, which means it's a noisy unit. It's very, very stimulating for that child. And you also have that separation again. You have that separation. Then you have the stigma that we as a society place on these women the minute they hear their baby is going through withdrawal. Everyone assumes they're bad. Mm. Most of the time, these women aren't bad. There's been some life events that are bad but they usually want what's best for their baby. And so trying to work through that and the shame, the guilt they go through as a mom is immense. So what are the longer term consequences potentially for these infants? So longer term really again looks back at the mother and the environment in which that child is going to be raised. So long term, if the environment remains chaotic, those children are at higher risk for attention deficit disorder, they're um, at risk for SIDS possibly, they're at risk to be in the foster care system, they're, it's an environmental issue. But you take them and you put them in a loving environment and the mother was on a narcotic for some reason and she's raising that child with love, then their long-term outcomes are actually similar to peers. It's very environmentally controlled. But is it the case that if somebody has been using opiates or whether, again, prescription or non or off the street during pregnancy, are there actual potential insults to the baby in terms of things like low birth weight or birth defects of any kinds, prematurity? I mean, are there issues that transfer into the baby just, just there by can virtue be. of it? There can be. Um, and again, these are all associations because a lot of times... If a mom is taking a narcotic for some reason, maybe her nutrition status isn't quite as good. Maybe she is smoking. Maybe there's something else going on. So low birth weight is something we do see. We do see microcephaly or small head size. But it's not severe to the point of, oh my gosh, there's not been brain growth. It's just that they tend to run on the smaller size at the 10th percentile versus the normal 50th percentile. And is there, are there longer-term consequences secondary to these things? So these if findings? the microcephaly, that low head size, persists, then there is a higher risk of both developmental disabilities and cognitive problems in the future. So bottom line here is you made the case that there are people in, during pregnancy who require taking some of these kind of opioids or narcotic drugs. Yes. And there are those who are doing it kind of off the street, you know. What kind of prevention in terms of the child having withdrawal, what kind of preventive methods are being used or can be used? So the probably the biggest and most important one is mom needs to get prenatal care as soon as she knows she's pregnant because her pregnancy affects how well that baby's going to do. Good prenatal care we know decreases the risk of low birth weight, decreases the risk of a preterm birth, helps that woman understand what is going on. Potentially, over time, during the pregnancy, maybe she can come off the narcotics. Maybe she can lower her dose or at least avoid increasing her dose towards the end of the pregnancy to potentially decrease that risk to the baby. Also, learn about the benefits of breastfeeding. There are many, and so potentially lowering that. Giving them a chance to think about this before they're delivering 
So the bottom line here is that they need to get prenatal care, they need to basically be upfront about the use of these drugs, and in some ways prepare themselves either during the pregnancy or post-delivery for potential issues of withdrawal. Absolutely. And, if, and if, a, if a physician knows, an obstetrician knows that a particular patient has been needing to take prescription drugs, that that baby will possibly be born with withdrawal syndrome, is there something that can be done to smooth that transition for that baby? Yes, so a good prenatal consult, talking to the pediatrician so the mother is fully aware, and then giving mom the information to help her understand what's going on and make it easier for her. Thank you so much. This has been very, very informative information. My guest has been Dr. Michelle Bodie. She's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University and a neonatologist for Krauss Hospital and the NICU Follow-Up Clinic. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next up, help for some digestive tract problems, which though common can have serious consequences. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. GI motility and functional disorders of the digestive system affect up to 25% of the U.S. population and comprise about 40% of the gastrointestinal problems for which patients seek health care. Joining us to discuss a new method for evaluating these problems and for treatment of them are Dr. Divi Minosha, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Department of Gastroenterology at Upstate Medical University, and Ms. Rhonda Ferry, a patient who can share her experiences regarding these issues. Welcome to you both. Thanks, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda, for having us on the show. So, Dr. Minosha, let me start with you. Help us understand what we mean when we use the term gastrointestinal motility problems. What are they? So, uh, Linda, gastrointestinal motility problem means that a normal uh, gastrointestinal tract uh, motor function is dependent on a complex, uh, coordinated fashion of firing of the nerves which supply the, this GI tract these nerves supply the smooth muscle cells lining the esophagus or the food pipe, the stomach, the small bowel, and the large bowel, which helps to push the food down from the food pipe towards stomach, small, and then large bowel in a coordinated fashion. And any uh, abnormality with this coordination mechanism leads to GI motility disorder, which, as you already mentioned, they are so very prevalent and to a very large extent underdiagnosed in the U.S. population. So give me a hint, just a sense of some examples. So would something like um, chronic constipation, for example, would that be fit yes. into that category? So if we go from top to bottom, in the food pipe or the esophagus, we may have dysphagia, which is a trouble swallowing. trouble in the swallowing. Uh, then we may have a refractory heartburn because of the reflux of the acid into the esophagus. Then in the stomach, we have a unique condition called gastroparesis, which incidentally my patient today, Rhonda Ferry, also is uh, experiencing that condition. Then you have small bowel bacterial overgrowth syndrome in the small bowel. And then you may have chronic constipation, fecal incontinence, uh, the symptoms are very subtle, but the spectrum is really widespread. How about something that you hear about quite often, something like irritable bowel disease? Is that also part of this? Yes. It is actually one of the most common um, GI motility disorder. It's, it's more like a symptom complex. The patient have gone to multiple physicians uh, for evaluation of their chronic abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation, and then eventually come to us, uh, the gastroenterologist, for further evaluation. And after excluding all the more worrisome diagnosis, we eventually reach uh, the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. So tell me, you mentioned gastroparesis as one of these disease entities. Yes. Let's talk about what that is, because Rhonda's here with us today, and she can give us more of a personal view on that. What exactly is it, though, from a medical standpoint? Definitely. 
So gastroparesis is a medical symptom complex. It, it, it's a disorder of the stomach in which you have, uh, the patient has intractable nausea and vomiting, uh, which gets worse after eating regular food. And it happens because the stomach is not able to empty out the f food particles down into the small bowel. Do we understand what causes this to happen and, and who is most likely, you know, who's most at risk for this problem? Yes, I'll take the second question first. So the, the most common uh, age group is uh, young to middle-aged women who are at highest risk for this disorder. Uh, in spite of our extensive workup, uh, we are able to pinpoint the exact etiology or the exact cause of gastroparesis. You're saying we're not able to. We are able oh. to pinpoint the cause in about three-fourths of these, uh, about three-fourths of the times. Uh, what has been found is that the final common pathway for gastroparesis is that the big nerve or the vagus nerve that supplies the whole GI tract, including the stomach, somehow the, these uh, various causes, which I will uh, enumerate in a bit, they tend to damage the nerve endings of the vagus nerve, which causes disorganization in the contractility or the contraction mechanism of the smooth muscle cells of the stomach which leads to the gastroparesis. So basically there's some kind of a disorder or a damage to the nerve fiber that would in innervate the muscles and that's why the stomach doesn't empty. Correct. So basically some of the signs and symptoms, well let's, let's turn to Rhonda. So you have had this condition, gastroparesis. Tell us, tell us your story. What, how did you first know it? What did you experience? What has it been like? Um, in January of 2015, it started where I just wasn't feeling well um, when I ate mostly. And I thought, you know, what's going on here? I would get very bloated after I ate. I could eat just small portions of food. Um, I would get very nauseous a lot. Um, after I ate, I would feel like I had like a brick in my stomach. That's the only way I know how to describe it. Um, that went on for a long time and I wasn't sure what was happening. I did have acid reflux, so I thought, well, maybe this is just part of it. Um, but as time went on, it got worse. I wasn't able to eat. If I did eat, I could only eat like maybe a quarter cup of food at a time without having issues. Um, so then I slowly started losing weight because of not being able to eat. Um, and from how much weight did you actually lose? I lost forty-four pounds. Wow! Yeah, um, from January fifteenth until November um, sixteenth. And for the, year the 15. for the benefit of our listeners who can't <clears throat> see you, Rhonda, you are a slight person to begin with. I mean, you're petite, so that is quite a lot of weight it for is you to have dropped. Weight. It yes. is. It is. Um, so you know, I thought, okay. It's time to go see the doctor. You know, what, what's going on here? I was just so sick, so sick. So let me turn back to Dr. Minoshi. So we taught, you alluded to causes. Now, we said the cause was damage in some way to the nerves, of the vagus nerve. What causes that to occur? Is it viral? Is it some, some insult that, you know, some kind of a, a, an infection that may occur? Yes. So the spectrum of etiology for... Um, uh, gastroparesis is very widespread or varied. In uh, about one-fourth of uh, the patients, uh, it's the long-standing diabetes, which is a very common cause, uh, especially when it's uncontrolled. So she, excuse me for interrupting you, but so is Rhonda a diabetic as well? Yes. <clears throat> I see. So you had the pre-existing diabetes going on. Exactly. And in this case, was that the causation of yes. the gastroparesis? Okay. Yes. Uh, then in about 5 to 10% of the patient, it's a viral gastroenteritis illness, which, is, uh, which may precipitate this uh, problem that may then linger on for weeks to months and sometimes for years we have seen. So in other words, basically what you're suggesting is you could just have some kind of a viral insult to the body, some virus. Correct. And it could even show up as a URI or something like that, a yes. respiratory, and it could literally damage the vagal nerve. Yes. 
then uh, in the in the more recent years, we have seen that as more and more patients are undergoing the gastric bypass weight loss surgery and, and other upper GI surgeries for the esophagus for refractory reflux disease, this is another subset of patients that accounts for about 20 to 24% of the gastroparesis uh, patient subset. Then other less common causes are uh, neurological disorders like Parkinson's disease. Then there are certain muscle disorders like scleroderma, certain chemotherapy radiation treatments. And but for some patients, you don't know. Exactly. So in percentage. spite of all the workup that we do to find out the cause, in about a quarter of these patients, we eventually label them as idiopathic or gastroparesis of unknown etiology. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with gastroenterologist Dr. Divi Manosha and his patient, Ms. Rhonda Ferry. And we're talking about GI motility problems, their diagnosis and treatment, and specifically a problem known as gastroparesis. So what are the potential complications besides weight loss that occur with something like gastroparesis? I mean, obviously, if you can't empty the stomach and you can't eat, Weight loss is a major one. What other things can happen? Yes. So uh, long-standing gas- gastroparesis can lead to progressive worsening of uh, nausea and vomiting, which is mostly postprandial. The patient tends to... After they've s- eaten. Yeah, feel full after eating small portions of meal, and eventually they develop aversion to the food uh, just because it's so distressful to have even small portions of food uh, of during the daytime. Um, so over, do they literally experience things like malnutrition, for example? Exactly. So over months to years, they, attend, they tend to develop dehydration. They tend to develop progressive weight loss like Rhonda developed. And then they develop nutritional deficiencies, vitamin, mineral deficiencies, malnutrition. In... Uh, patients who are diabetics, there are sudden fluctuations in the blood sugar levels, which causes even worsening of the control of the diabetes. And uh, one of the less common but potentially life-threatening complication of gastroparesis is called a food bezoar, in which the particles of food which have uh, been retained in the stomach for a long time, they tend to accumulate together to create a hard ball of, it's, it's called a food ball, and this food ball can potentially cause acute obstruction in the GI tract, which can be life-threatening and needs to be treated urgently, endoscopically, or surgically. So they can be removed either endoscopically or surgically Correct. if necessary. But those that could be pretty scary, I yes. imagine. So let's get back to the treatments. I, I don't want to run out of time. How do you basically address this problem? I mean, are there medications? Is it surgically? Is it endoscopically treated? Help us understand how you would treat gastroparesis. Yeah, very good question, Linda. Uh, The treatment of gastroparesis is essentially multidisciplinary uh, in nature, and that's what we try to provide at Upstate Medical University. It involves, uh, the lead person is, of course, the gastroenterologist who's guiding the care of these patients. It involves a primary care provider, the nutritionist or the dietitian for dietary advice and other specialty specialty providers for the patient. So essentially the way I describe the treatment to my patient is fourfold. One is the nutrition aspect, the dietary aspect. So in the patient who have refractory symptoms but have not developed malnutrition, we tend to make some dietary changes in coordination with the nutritionist. Essentially what it means is eating small five to six portions of food on a daily basis, uh, having less of fiber or raw vegetables or fruits in, the, in their food, then having low fat but high carb diets. And if the patient does not tolerate solid meals, then we tend to prefer pureed or liquid Uh, meals for them. So basically, you can make some changes by altering their intake. Yes. But I I don't want to run out of time. Let's get to what other things, either medically or surgically or endoscopically, are needed to be done. Yeah. So we do have uh, uh, various medications which are available. The medications to help augment or improve the motility of the stomach, these include the Reglan or the metoclopramide, but unfortunately that has a FDA warning regarding some neurological side effects. So the tolerability is somewhat uh, not widespread. Then we have 
another restricted medication called domperidone. There's a third medication called cisapride. These two are restricted medications from FDA. But there are medications that work. But again, um, are you do do you literally do any kind of endoscopic treatments or surgical treatments to help the stomach empty? Is yes. that part of it? So in the initial diagnosis, endoscopy is very essential. After that, on a case-to-case basis, I offer a botulinum injection uh, to my patient like I did in Rhonda's case at the opening of the stomach. Then we do place feeding tubes in patients who are suffering from weight loss. Uh, These are called the GJ or the feeding tube that goes from the stomach into the small bowel where we totally bypass the feeding through the stomach. And then in extreme cases, surgically, we may have to place long-term feeding tubes or remove the bezos, as we already discussed in the earlier part of the conversation. So in Rhonda's case, you used Botox, and that helped basically allowed the the food to empty more readily? Yes, it, it mainly helped in the nausea and the vomiting symptoms in case of Rhonda, but uh, the, the, sim- the symptoms tend to get better over weeks to months. Uh, so we are still following up her symptoms very closely. It was placed just like two weeks ago. Now you have a new technique. It's called monometry. 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 And is that fairly new? And and is that mostly a diagnostic technique? It's high res. So in the past year or so, we have we have developed a mortality laboratory at Upstate Medical University, where we are using the state of the art high resolution monometry, both for the esophagus and the anorectal to further diagnose or to better diagnose the motility disorders of the GI tract. So that's an exciting new technology. Yes, and it, it is available for use for the central New York population. We are, we are going reaching out to the public for further evaluation of their symptoms. So Rhonda, how are you doing now? I'm doing better than I was. I, um, I have a feeding tube. Um, I still don't eat as well as I'd like to. Most of the time I just drink like an inshore during the day because it's what my stomach can handle. There are other days that I can eat a little bit of food and I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And then other days I'm not okay. So it's, so it's, it's, it's a variable. Day, day-to-day thing. And you require continual, I would imagine, evaluation and help. Yes, to continue to treat this. Well, thank you both so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's a a very, very complex uh, um, number of disorders, but the gastroparesis is really obviously quite, quite challenging. So I thank you both for coming in and sharing it with us. And also these new diagnostic techniques sound very exciting and very, it's wonderful to have them here in the central New York area. Rhonda, thank you so much for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Divi Minosha. He's assistant professor of medicine in the Department of Gastroenterology at Upstate Medical University. And Ms. Rhonda Ferry, a patient who has been so kind to share her experience with us. Thank you both again. Thank you. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Pam Freeman works in the medical school at SUNY Upstate as a standardized patient, teaching medical students how to acquire the skills of interviewing patients and really listening to their stories. Her poem, Where Does It Hurt?, is a remarkable example of the story within a story. Where does it hurt? Well, since you asked, remember, you said, tell me where it hurts. I got thinking about it. You already know the places that show up on the scans, and the other places those places gossip with, snickering in their cruel, contorting language of pain. But since you asked, and I got thinking about it, it also hurts in my daughter. Her eyes, the sad sky of this room, and in her little son, who clutches a plastic army man and is too young to understand, as we tritely put it, although so am I, if you must know, and I bet you are too. It also hurts, I'm told, in my daughter's resentful ex-husband. Of course, everything seems specifically to take aim at him. His resentments I actually do understand, or at least I get where they're coming from. I always did, 
and wished I could have warned her there wasn't a thing to be done about them. The world would simply multiply his misery, and she'd keep taking on half. But it wouldn't have made a difference, because love makes you believe you can fix life itself. She wheels her guilt in here and quietly hooks it up, one more machine to supervise me, drawing its own conclusions. Me? I'm past warning anyone at this point. Nobody wants it. And besides, do I look wise or successful in this wrinkled calico tent of a hospital gown, my eyebrows gone hairless, lending an expression of perpetual blank amazement? No, dispensing wisdom is not my place anymore, which leads me to wonder what my place is, if I in fact have one. Pardon all this blah blah, it's the illusion of ego, the lifeline of I am. I mean, right? I am aren't I? Right. So therefore, I must matter. But what if it's the other way around? And when you cease to matter, you cease to exist. And the language in your body is trying to say, you're excused now. That's where it hurts, since you asked. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we learn all about post-polio syndrome and get one patient's personal perspective on this persistent disease. Plus, medical ethics is not just for the classroom. We'll hear a real-life case that is challenging the experts. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>